0: and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hyperthetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hyperthetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 1, Episode 12.
1: One. I wake on the thin cot of a jail cell. It's sometime between midnight and dawn, and the cell is deathly cold. A chill runs through my bones. I'm covered in sweat sit up cub the bullet catcher's voice drifts from the adjacent cell and fills the entire space sit up he says again i pull myself up my stomach lurches i lean back against the bars and the coldness of the metal sends an electric shock through me i'm crying but i don't remember why the bullet catcher reaches through the bars and holds me The chill evaporates in his arms. I'm suddenly warm, as though someone has thrown a blanket over me. Breathe slow, he says. Take deep breaths. I'm dying, I croak. (laughs) No, you've only had too much to drink. I do what he says. I breathe. Then I bend over the cot and throw a green snake bite and whatever it was I ate at the saloon. The bullet catcher holds me so I won't fall off the cot. I heave for a while after that, though there is nothing left to my stomach. Then I lean back against the bars and close my eyes. The bullet catcher lets me go and wipes my mouth with his sleeve. I'm sorry, cub. In my stupor, I have no idea what he's talking about. For what? For this, he says. For everything. I swallow. Just don't let me go. I wake, remembering little of the previous night. I'm covered in bruises from a fight that comes back to me in snatches. I remember shouting at someone at the bar, standing quickly, my chair toppling over. Then the street, lighted with lamps burning behind windows. A lot of yelling. Heartright trying to put herself between me and whoever the other person was. The last thing I remember is Heartright getting thrown to the ground. I kicked whoever it was between the legs, but the bruises tell me that I lost the fight. The bullet catcher watches me from the other cell, like he's trying to coax me back to life with his gaze. And then I remember waking up in the cell in the middle of the night and how he held me and spoke to me. And I realize with surprise that I'm not angry with him anymore. Turns out when it comes down to it, forgiveness is easy. At least when you love someone. I forgive the bullet catcher. And it feels like shedding a tremendous weight. What do you mean you're leaving? Hartwright stands in the library. She'd been distractedly thumbing through a book when I told her. I need to find Cass. Who the hell's that? She's a bullet catcher. I'm going to bring her here. We're going to end the gunslinger's control over the water. We're going to bust out the bullet catcher, and we're going to get the hell out of here. (laughs) Is that all? That's all. I reckon you're going to get yourself killed. Maybe. So are you in? She snaps the book closed and puts it back on the shelf. Don't reckon I got anything better to do. The next day... Hartwright and I play it perfectly. We lose my bodyguard in the crowds of people in the industrial area of town. Then we hire a buggy to take us from one end of the city to the next. We switch to another to take us back, except we jump out a few streets down, duck into an alley, and watch as Cloak's gunslingers hustle after our empty buggy, completely fooled. Then we rendezvous with our horses, which we've already saddled and readied with supplies, and we're gone. Though it's two days' ride from Las Pistolas, the place where the bullet catcher's coordinates lead to isn't on any map in Nico's library. Hartwright says she's never been to that part of the desert before. I've heard stories, she says. It's a wild part of the Southland. I've heard that there are beasts there never seen by anyone. I heard a sandstorm has raged there for as long as anyone can remember and makes that part of the desert totally impassable. I say, it sounds like the perfect place to go if you don't want to be found. What was supposed to be two days stretches into three and then four. It seems whenever the compass says we're getting close, the needle starts spinning and we lose all direction. The wind is high and the sand freckles our skin and makes seeing hard. We wrap our faces to keep the stinging sand out of our eyes and mouths. We walk our horses into the wind, using their bodies to shield us. We should head back, Hartwright tells me. And she's right. If we head back now, we'll have just enough food to get us back to Las Pistolas. And that's if we don't get lost like we are already. I squint my eyes against the stinging sand and finally, I have to admit, we're beaten. There's nothing out here, or if there is, it's so well hidden, we'll never find it. I pull on No Name's reins to turn her around, but she fights against me, bucking her head and pulling free. She runs full gallop into the wind, and in an instant, she's gone, lost in the storm. I start to run after her, but Hartwright grabs my arm. Don't, you'll never find your way out. But from somewhere in the windstorm, I can still hear No Name whinnying, as if she were calling out for me to follow her. I can't leave her! And I press on into the wind. We soldier through the sand. It gathers higher and higher, rising above my ankles and my knees. And then it's waist high, and I feel like I'm trudging through mud. But we're getting closer to No Name. I can hear her like she's right in front of me. So much so that I reach out to touch her and fall forward through the sand, over the lip of the dune and down the steep far side. No sooner do I cross over the top and begin to fall, than the wind stops. I slide to the bottom, exhausted, my skin stinging and my body aching. I look up and watch Hartwright sliding down the side of the dune with her horse in tow. The wind howls up above, but down here is a sort of valley with hard ground underfoot. I catch Hartwright as she slides to the bottom. From between the folds in the scarf wrapped around her head, her eyes are wide. She pulls off the headscarf and points over my shoulder. Look. I turn to follow her gaze, and before me stands a grove of oaks and pines. A bed of grass lines a small valley between the dunes, with flowers and birds and buzzing insects. No Name reveals herself from behind the trees and shakes sand from her mane. I run to her and throw my arms around her neck. You reckon this is it? Asks Hartwright. It's gotta be. She peers into the dark grove of trees. "'I guess we're heading in there,' she says, and draws her pistol. "'What are you doing?' "'Youngin. I know we come in peace and all, "'but you don't get as old as I am without taking precautions.' "'Put it away. We need her help, not a fight.' "'Carefully, we proceed into the trees. "'The place is alive with sounds I once knew but had forgotten.' They are the same sounds as the woods on the mountain where the bullet catcher and I once lived. The foxes and deer come right up near us as we pass through, unafraid of people. It's beautiful, but I can't help feeling uneasy. This place gives me the creeps, Hartwright says, echoing my thoughts. The sound of a hammer cocking stops us cold. Hold it right there unless you want that pretty little nose shot off your face. I put my hands up and turn to face her. Cass? She gives me a puzzled expression, steps up from the shadows, and lowers her gun. You're the girl that was with Lobo. Who? The bullet catcher? Is that what he called himself? As if he's the only one left. Lobo. I turn the name over in my mind. And then I think of his name for me. Cub. (laughs) They are good names, I think. They fit. What are you doing here? We came for your help. The bull Lobo is in trouble. He's locked up in Las Pistolas. We aim to break him out. My debt to him is paid. If we don't do something, he'll be killed. For a second, she just stands there and thinks it over. Then she spits in the dirt. You two better mosey on out of here. I don't do entertaining. Something inside of me is cracking. I can feel it happening when Cass tells us to go. Truth is, maybe I've been feeling it for a long time. This world seems so big and open and full of people, and there's so precious few willing to help when others need it. I won't. Excuse me? I came here to get help, and I'm not leaving without it. There's something between you, you and Lobo. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. Maybe it started good and got bad. I don't care. I'm asking you to put it aside and help me. I don't know if Cass is going to give in or laugh at me. She stands there, sizing me up. And then Hartwright speaks. I'll just add because this seems to have gotten lost in all this. But if you come with us, you'll have a good chance to get even with the whole town of gunslingers. Now Cass smiles. That's what you should have lived with, kid. She turns and waves for us to follow her deeper into the woods. Eventually, the woods open into a clearing with a small log cabin sitting beside a stone well. Cass invites us inside. It's a bare, one-room building, empty except for the pile of furs for a bed, an oil lamp, a small iron stove, and a couple of dusty books. The winds are most calm in the morning. That's when we'll head out. Until then, we should rest. I wake near morning. Outside is still pitch black. Hartwright sleeps soundly on the floor, wrapped in the fur Cass gave her. But our host is nowhere to be seen. I pull a fur around my shoulders and quietly leave. The storm is quieted, and the moon shines down on the hidden green valley. Cass kneels before a tree at the edge of the clearing. A chill wind blows through the wood. There isn't a sound, not even the wind. I approach her slowly, my curiosity getting the better of me. I can't sleep, she says, still not turning. I'm an early riser. When I come up beside her, I see that she's crying, and I think I must be dreaming. You never seen tears before, she says. I just didn't expect a person like you to be crying. She nods. I can give that impression. She points to the tree. There's something carved there It reads Alejandro, my darling My son She says Killed in the fighting Like all the others All the others That's when I look around at the trees And I see that on each one is etched a name It's good you're seeing it before we head off This is what you have to look forward to When you start a war Then why go with us? She wipes the last tears from her face and presses her hand against the name carved into the tree. That's why. A few hours later, with the winds low, we ride out of the oasis with supplies enough to get back to Las Pistolas, and saddlebags full of Cass's homemade dynamite, more than enough to blow a hole in the jail, bring down the factory, and take out the pump station.
0: I like a story that will take me to extremes, and nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, that things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seehorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. Two.
1: We arrive outside Las Pistolas near midnight two days later. The moon hangs bright and low over the town. It's a bad night for going unnoticed. But it doesn't matter anyway, because everyone has gathered in the town square where a wood platform has been erected. The mob around the platform is illuminated by a constellation of torches dotted here and there. Four figures stand atop the platform. Nico, Cloak, Lobo and an executioner hooded in black. Shit. Heartright drawls, giving voice to the same thought running through my mind. This is perfect, Cass says. I shoot a hard look in her direction, but then I catch her meaning. Everyone's attention is drawn to the execution. Perfect timeness at the dynamite. I ride in on my own, while heart-writing casts circle around to the industrial district on the far side of town. The plan is simple. I intervene in the execution, cause a disturbance, and while everyone's attention is on me, they blow the factory and the pump station. Only thing is, I have no idea how I'm going to do it. As I approach the stage, I can see Cloak at the front of the platform, addressing the crowd, but he's too far away for me to hear. Lobo stands with the noose around his neck. The executioner is beside him with his arms crossed, and Nico stands to the side, his head bowed slightly. The crowd roars. Cloak has finished his speech. He turns and signals the executioner, who grabs hold of a handle attached to the stage and pulls. A trapdoor swings open and Lobo falls through. Without thinking, I draw my gun and fire. The bullet sings through the rope before it snaps taut, and Lobo falls to the ground, unharmed. The crowd turns in my direction like a single being with a thousand eyes, all trained on me. There's nothing for it now. I holster my gun, give No Name a little kick, and push my way through. The people in the crowd part to let me pass, but they don't stop staring. When I get to the front, I leap off No Name's back and onto the stage. A pair of gunslingers have pulled Lobo onto the platform and dumped him on the ground. I stride right past Cloak toward Nico. I grab him by the front of the shirt and pull him down to look me in the eyes. You told me you wouldn't hurt him. He takes my hands in his and gently disengages. You shouldn't have stopped it, he says, swallowing the words. Cloak thought you would, but I didn't believe him. Nico's eyes flash to Cloak. A pair of gunslingers come up behind me and pin my arms. They take my guns and lead me from the stage, standing on either side of me just in case I decide to make a run for him. And they pick up Logo and bring him with us. The gunslingers follow us like a trail of ants. We make our way down the torch-lined streets until we arrive at the entrance to Nico's club. As we enter, Cloak turns around, thrusts his arms in the air, and announces, There's nothing to see here. Go on now. The crowd grumbles. They wanted blood. That's what they'd come for. But then Cloak closes the door and shuts out the world outside. They lead us through the dining rooms, deep into the building. The doors open into a disused room. Unlike the rest of the place, this room is in disarray. Sheets are flung over the furniture, the wallpaper is peeling, and everything is coated in a layer of dust. A bookcase is built into the far wall, lined with dusty tomes. Nico selects one of the volumes. A dull, unlatching sound echoes from behind the wall, and the bookcase swings open, revealing a flight of stairs leading into a dark stone cellar. The cellar is cluttered with racks of bottles of wine and whiskey and snakebite. At the far wall, we step in front of a bottle rack. Nico reaches for one of the hundreds of snakebite bottles on the rack and turns it counterclockwise until there's a click from behind the wall. Another hidden door swings open. My hands move to find the comfort of my guns. But of course, they're not there. I've grown used to going for them at the first sign of trouble. The passage leads to a small room with shining gray stone walls. candles melt on the floor and narrow ledges, throwing cold light onto the floor and ceiling. Two chairs are set around a small square table, like a butcher's block in the center of the room. The flickering light licks across the crimson stains splashed along the top of the table. On one of the chairs sits a closed briefcase, somewhat like a doctor's traveling valise. When I see it, my blood runs cold. I struggle to break free of the gunslingers on either side of me, but they're too strong. I'm trapped. They push me inside, and the secret door ratchets closed. They dump Lobo in the corner, and one of the gunslingers draws his gun and presses it against his head. Nico turns me toward him and throws his arms around me. I'm so shocked I think I jump a little bit. He doesn't let go for a long time. The air in the small underground chamber is cold and he trembles slightly. I'm sorry it's come to this, he says, but you betrayed me. You betrayed the oath of the gunslingers. He looks around the room. "'This is a special place,' he says. "'This is where you make the best gunslingers faster, better. "'But you're here because you need to learn a lesson. Nico. you're scaring me. "'You don't have to worry. "'Cloak and I will watch over you while you heal, "'and when it's over, we will have forgiven you. "'What do you mean while I heal?' "'I peer over his shoulder at Cloak and the other gunslingers,' darkly dressed with hats pulled low over their eyes and a cold animal fear grabs me by the heart Nico holds my right hand in his running his thumb over the ridges of my knuckles Nico, i whisper pulling him close please listen to me let's talk before anything happens that you can't take back let's talk just the two of us right now we will talk afterward i promise He is pale, and his eyes are bruised like he hasn't slept in days. He raises his shooting hand and pulls off the glove. His hand is gnarled. His trigger finger has been surgically removed, like the man's in Los Casadores who challenged Lobo. Everything, the skin, the muscle, the bone, down to the knuckle. In its place, a mechanical finger has been surgically implanted. The skin of the finger is shaped from coiled wire that bends like a compressed spring when he flexes it. His flesh, stripped to the knuckle, is a burned pink color. The skin's been peeled away from the back of his hand, and the contents dissected, removed, and replaced. Two incisions, he says one along the back of the hand to allow for the amputation of the bone and muscle, and then another around the circumference of the finger at the knuckle. We've developed a special instrument that removes the whole finger in a single clip. Please, Nico, don't do this to me. I don't want it. I struggle in the gunslinger's grip. I force down panic. You won't get it, he says sadly. I'm sorry, Emma but after everything you've done, you can't be a gunslinger. Cloak steps up, grabs me, and pushes me into the chair. We're not going to give you this gift, he says. We're just going to take your trigger finger. We'll tell the people that you were excited for the surgery, to show your loyalty to the gunslingers, but that it went wrong and we couldn't save your finger. Now the tears are starting to fall. I can't keep them back. Nico bends down and cups my cheek in his hand. This is how it has to be, Emma. I'm sorry. You'll still be welcome to stay. Nothing else has to change. You'll be treated like a queen. You told me you'd never let anybody hurt me. It will only hurt for a moment, I promise. One of the gunslingers grabs me by the wrist and pulls my hand to the center of the butcher's block. Cloak sits in the chair opposite and from the valise produces a device that looks like a pair of large, pneumatic pliers. Nico kneels beside me and puts his hand on my back. It'll be over in a flash. I don't look at him. I stare straight at Cloak, trying not to blink, trying not to show how utterly terrified I am. He fits the device over my trigger finger and screws it closed. All he has to do is squeeze the handle. Deep breath he says, and squeezes. Pain shoots through my body, seizing my muscles and my voice. Nico holds me down in the chair so I don't struggle away. It feels like the device is peeling my skin and flesh away, layer by layer. Someone is screaming, and it takes me a moment to realize that it's me. I feel the world fading away. First, the smell of that dark, hidden room then the color, then my sight entirely. And just before the world blinks out and all sound with it, I hear, deep in the distance, the low rumble of explosions.
0: You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 1 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
1: Anna Sheridan, New York Times best-selling author of Supernatural Horror. Missing for nearly six months now.
0: That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I happen?
1: Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierced the veil, so to speak.
0: Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Lydia Shama, and executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton, performed by Inez del Castillo, audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith, additional editing by Corey Barton, original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch, cover art by Christine Barcelona.